0: Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people do the real work on the podcast you'll hear from leaders from councils from within the nhs and other public services and also those involved in policy development i particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and who are keen to share those lessons with others because as i think as we all know Public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. This episode is with Emily Miles. Emily is the chief executive of the Food Standards Agency and before that held a number of senior positions within central government. As you can imagine, it's a very wide ranging discussion. We talk about the role of the Food Standards Agency and yes, we do talk about Brexit because that has had a pretty big impact on the food industry and in particular, the transport of food produce. There are some positive impacts of Brexit as well, such as the opportunity to create policy from first principles. Anyone who knows me will know I have a great interest in the bridge between central government policy making and local delivery. And Emily has some very interesting thoughts on that and some great insight, actually, as the Food Standards Agency does sit very squarely on that bridge. But my favourite part of the discussion is when Emily talks about leadership and the importance of authentic leadership and being yourself. So without further ado, let's hear from Emily. Emily, you're really welcome on the Radical Reformers podcast. Um, I wonder if you could start by just saying a little bit about who you are.
1: Thanks, Andrew. It's really lovely to be here. Um, I'm Emily Miles. I'm the chief executive of the Food Standards Agency. I'm a civil servant. I've been a civil servant for nearly 22 years.
0: You were in, I think you were in DEFRA, weren't you, before, before this role?
1: Yeah. So I did about 15 years of my career in, in home affairs. I was in the home office and um, I worked in Downing Street on asylum and immigration and criminal justice issues. Um, I was the policing director in the home office. And then I did a shift in 2015 and moved to DEFRA, um, which does environment, food and rural affairs. And then Brexit happened in 2016 and I became the coordinator of domestic issues on Brexit for DEFRA.
0: So you've got really good experience, which I'll come on to later, about working in central government and working in an agency that works very closely with local government. And that that connection is, is really important, I think. But before we go there, I think most of our listeners will be well aware of the Food Standards Agency, but they might not be fully aware of its role. Can you say a little bit more about what the agency does?
1: So the Food Standards Agency is there for food you can trust. That's our mission. We operate in three countries, so England, Northern Ireland and Wales. Um, And we work closely with local authorities to ensure that food stays safe and honest. Um, So we've got agreements and protocols that support them in their work um, and their food inspection work. We also do our own inspections for the more risky businesses, particularly meat. Um, so we've got about 500 frontline staff who are in the 200 abattoirs around the country and 230, and they um, they do inspections of meat. Um, we also have a, a service delivery partner who provide official vets there, okay. and then. Do um, science research, so into things like food allergy, foodborne pathogens. You know, we've got a project on does COVID survive on food packaging. Um, we look at antimicrobial resistance and so on. And then we also are responsible for determining if new foods are safe to eat. So, for example, cannabidiol CBD products. Got lots of applications in with us at the moment where we're assessing the safety. And we're based in London, Cardiff, Belfast, York, and Birmingham. Where we have offices but we also have a significant home working um set of people as well
0: excellent and you mentioned councils there so councils clearly have a key role a lot of our listeners are leaders with it within councils so it's it's not it's not a role that you often hear a lot about so what what is it councils are responsible for in an area so
1: um the- there's food hygiene and there's food standards so food hygiene is um, whether your restaurants and your food manufacturers are um, producing food to a safe standard Um, and then food standards is more about the composition of the food so is the ingredients labelling correct it's more of a trading standards question Um, and then there are other things too like you have to make sure that um, fishing boats are uh, hygienic and safe and uh, um, that you have to approve premises for certain things. So there's this responsibility set out in law. But the thing that most people will be aware of is the food hygiene rating. So yeah. Every um, restaurant or takeaway or food business or even any supermarket selling food needs to get a food hygiene rating and they're from naught to five. The, it's been in place for about a decade, that system. It won a prize as one of the most important public health interventions in the last century. Um, and it, uh, the, the food inspectors go in and check to see whether the um, restaurant and the kitchen are being well kept and then they get a rating. So the food hygiene rating is um, on a scale of naught to 5. 3 or above is okay. 5 means fully compliant with food safety legislation.
0: That, I think, for everybody listening, will be something to keep it An eye out for it. And then the FSA's role, then it's a national role, as you say, across the three countries and that you're there to provide support, guidance and monitoring to councils as well.
1: Yeah. So we we have a formal role in that we write the Food Law Code of Practice, which is some statutory guidance. And that sets out um, the approach to risk. So it determines what's a high risk business, what's a low risk business. And then we prescribe what the intervention should be relating to that kind of business. So, for instance, if it's high risk, then you need to go do an in- intervention and go and visit it as an inspector every six months. We've got about four thousand businesses around the country that would be in that category A, um, and then there's various different categories. So we set all that out in the food law code of practice, and then we also audit to check that local authorities are following that, and we collect performance information. And um, it's this concept of being the central competent authority. So the yeah. local authorities are competent authorities. We're the central competent authority. And we are responsible for making sure the system works and that um, that food hygiene in the round um, is being protected. Understood. So, that's yeah. our system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then just to give listeners an idea of scale, roughly how many staff are in, in the Food Standards Agency?
1: So we've got about 1,400 staff. So. All right. about, okay, big. Uh, so about 500 are our own meat hygiene inspectors, and then we we contract for another between seven and 900 folk who are official vets and meat hygiene inspectors. And then so, but then there's another 900 people who are um, who who could sit behind a desk who are our scientists, our policy people. Um, we've got finance, HR, communications. Yeah, you know, and we have offices in Wales and Northern Ireland, so a lot of people working with those governments there yeah. as well.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. So I I can't think personally about food standards without thinking about Brexit, unfortunately. And and I think everybody knows and in some parts of the country is certainly starting to experience that Brexit will have and may continue to have an impact on access to food produce and food standards. And I certainly know that um, there was an issue in Northern Ireland around sausages at one point. Um, so, so what? Um, what are the, some of the challenges and opportunities that this process is presenting?
1: So, I think that phrase "challenges and opportunities" is right. I, I was um, in DEFRA on the day that the referendum was um, was called. That I think it was the twenty fourth of June, twenty sixteen, and I remember that sense of. Um, just shock because we hadn't imagined that the rule book would get ripped up. And then as, um, as people started working on the future of the common agricultural policy or um, what we should do about our fisheries, or, um, there was this real sense of, oh, we've never done policymaking before where we've had to start from first principles and say, what do we want? And it, the, the FSA and DEFRA were filled with policy officials whose careers had been based on going to Brussels and back. To working groups to negotiate with many other member states about um policies. So so there's this sense of you just can start from scratch, potentially. Um so that's that's the opportunity. The challenge is that the food industry was deeply integrated with the EU. The single market was incredibly um uh powerful in terms of the operating models and the food that was flowing across borders. And the point of the single market was that there was trust and mutual recognition, in effect, between these different uh, regimes in the different countries. And you didn't have to have checks on food going across the border to prove that it was safe. So now, um, because we're a, a third country, the UK is a third country to the EU, um, that means that the EU treats us as a more suspicious actor. Um, and it, it has got many more checks um, that it expects uh, Food producers, food exporters in the in the in Great Britain to go through, and of course that gets more complicated because in Northern Ireland the Northern Ireland arrangements um, continue to be harmonised with the EU. So now product going from Great Britain has to, I mean, there's some exceptions that have been done, um, but in theory they would have to have all the checks that a product going to the EU from a third country would need.
0: We, exactly. we won't get into the minutiae of, of the Northern Ireland Protocol on this. I won't put you through that. But yeah.
1: Well, let me just mention the sausages because I think it's a really interesting example. The EU um, expects any product of animal origin to have an export health certificate on it. Um, so, for example, if you're a ready-made lasagna or if you've got a pepperoni on pizza um, or mozzarella on so it's a product of an animal origin so it needs an export health certificate and and the certificate proves that health checks have been done, that information has been collected in the right way and it has to be signed off by a vet now the EU didn't have an export health certificate for fresh meat product uh, preparation in part because pork fresh meat has a risk of trichinella which is like a ringworm Um, and we in the UK like most EU countries do we have a testing regime for trichinella in abattoirs so we make sure that um, that there isn't trichinella in our pork products. But the EU treats third countries with suspicion. It just assumes you don't have that kind of testing regime. So it only allows third countries to import frozen meat products into the EU. The fresh products aren't possible. So that's where the sausages thing came about from.
0: So this is very much computer says no rather than any genuine suspicion.
1: That's right. And the EU would say, well, you're outside the single market. This is the consequences. The, The law is really clear. And the law isn't in a sense based on whether or not we have good testing regimes on trichomella. It's based on how they treat third countries. So yeah. it's a kind of principle rather than the practice. And that in effect is what the Northern Ireland Protocol negotiations are about at the moment, where the UK is saying, well, hold on a minute. You know, we can, we've got trusted trader schemes. We've got checks. We can show we're producing food to the same standards as it was um, before it was ready.
0: I think that's just a very good example of. You know, we're not I'm certainly not going to ask or expect you to to comment on 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 Brexit. And I'm not going to either. But just just the the complexities of seeing that process through. That's just one example of pork. And, you know, think of all the other things which have to be ironed out and agreed You know, to unpick a system that has been developing over decades so yeah no it's a really good example and i and i appreciate you explaining that in in a bit of detail because i think for people some people listening it might think why is this causing so much trouble or concern but actually that example shows exactly why i think
1: and can i can i perhaps give another one um where there's an opportunity because the way that the eu law has been designed over the last 40 to 50 years which uh, is dominates about 90% of food law. So it's, it's all of our law on food has come from that EU multilateral process. Um, it tend, the, the approach tends to be very prescriptive on the face of the legislation. So it tends to write in um, particular aspects, for example, of the operating model that are in law. So for, for example, in our meat hygiene inspection, it's very prescribed in law when you need a vet, when they need to show up in person, what exact certificate they need to sign, um, what particular checks they need to have done. So if you want to change any of that, we have to take primary legislation to do it. So it's quite inflexible. And it, it's very focused on input rather than outcome. So whereas a more British approach might be to define we, we want safe food and it's the responsibility of the food business to provide it. And then the detail of how that was done we could put into guidance or or, or um yes. uh, you know, we could we could establish in a different way. So that's the opportunity is that you could create more efficient systems to get to the same yeah. outcome. But I think because the EU is this multilateral process, they tended to write everything down and be specific.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. Um I'd like to take a step back now and think about the connection between central and local government, which is required across across a whole range of policy areas. And I'm generally very interested in how to create effective bridges between central government policy making and local implementation so the fsa is a national agency whose work is determined by central government policy but the implementation is local in partnership with local authorities so how do you make this work and and i'm sure the the sturdiness of that bridge that you provide has been really tested over the past couple of years during covid it
1: it really has um and also, I think tested over the years of austerity. So, if I look back to the funding that the FSA had in 2010, or the funding that local authorities' food teams had in 2010, I'd say, in the main, we're probably at half what we were then. And certainly, I think that's true for training standards. Perhaps slightly less true for food hygiene um, inspectors. But in the FSA, we're, we're half the we're half the cost. And so, um, what we used to do was a huge amount of liaison. Um, with local authorities, that tailed off a bit in the middle of the 2010s and we've actually reinstated it a bit more because of COVID and um, because we've and, and actually virtual working makes it more possible we can go to more meetings now um, around the country just by dipping into someone's Microsoft Teams call rather than having yes. to travel so we, we, I do think it's improved but so liaison um, is, is one very significant piece we obviously have the, the formal performance management piece that we do looking at what interventions have happened, um, how many food hygiene ratings have been awarded um, and so on. And then we have something called um, FSA Smarter Communications, which is a digital platform for communication and collaboration and resource sharing. And that gets into um, the email uh, inboxes of lots and lots of local authority officers working on food and feed enforcement. But so those are the, the probably the, the main ways that we relate.
0: And what are your thoughts on... Um what the key elements of an effective bridge between central and local government are because for me it's just so important that bridge i think a lot of people in central government are fantastic at policy making but not all of them have frontline experience and therefore can find the translation of policy into actual implementation quite challenging whereas some of the most effective and impactful central government civil servants I've worked with are people who have had frontline experience. So just in your role, I mean, what do you think makes for an effective bridge?
1: Oh, um, it's such a big question. So it has to be two way. So uh, we need knowledge about how local authorities work. Um, the skill sets, the kind of work. And in fact, my uh, regulatory compliance team is filled with ex-environmental health officers and ex-training standards officers and, and so on. So that kind of real deep knowledge and insight uh, for how local authorities work is, is incredibly important. But it has to go the other way, too, because um, we have a national overview at the FSA. So we can see opportunities to do things differently. Um, we can see where things are inconsistent. Uh, we, we, can, we hold the question of the whole resources that the system has and the fact that it's not enough to do with everything that's needed. So we're often making proposals and suggestions to improve the situation, which some local authority officers will be resistant to because it, it's changed and it doesn't seem to make sense from where they're sitting. So yeah. there's, a, there's a listening that's needed on both sides, I, I would yeah. say. Um, I think there's, there's another aspect that would be great, but I don't think central government does very well, is joining up. So if you look at local authority and the way they organise themselves, it tends to be that regulatory services sit together. So you've got your folk who are worrying about health and safety alongside the people who are doing food safety. There might be other kind of licensing and certificates and so on going on from the local authority. Now, those regimes sit in completely different government departments. And and within central government, we don't talk to each other enough and we don't coordinate enough. And actually, one of the big wins from COVID because local authority resources were so stretched and so many officers were being put onto COVID enforcement duties, in, in, uh, the, and it's now called the Department for Levelling Up, but the Ministry for Housing at the time brought together the regulatory services folks: so, Food Standards Agency, Office of Product um, Safety, the Health and Safety Executive, and others. And we were actually sitting around a table saying, "Well, how do we prioritise between our different needs?" And I don't think government had really done that before. And we were able to say, these are the high priority things you must do as a regulatory services function. And these are the low priority ones um, and get a joined up message. So for me, a, a good bridge should also have collaboration at the government end of it, not just at the local authority end of it. And that's the that's bit right. I don't think we do well enough. Uh,
0: I think that's extremely interesting there. Um, qu- quite a lot of the work we do involves trying to get those go- government departments to to bridge between each other as well. There should be bridges everywhere, I think. And it's it's incredibly important that that happens. And your your example there of being around the table with different actors that you maybe hadn't been around the table with before. I think that's reflected l- locally as well. Um, you know, you have, uh, you know, I think it, they call goal command teams locally, where you have the chief executive of the council, the NHS are represented police schools. All, all around the table, making decisions on on a weekly basis and and obviously that's that's difficult to keep going, but certainly it would be great as we emerge from the pandemic to to try and retain some of the really positive behaviors that have been going on at central government level but also locally as well and I just wonder how effectively. Both central and local government will be at maintaining the things that were really worth keeping, and how quickly people disappear back into their silos. And you know, I think really good leadership will be important
1: here. I have worked on a lot of um, sort of urgent crises over my 22 years in the civil service, and um, Brexit felt like one. Covid felt like one. Um, when i was in the home office we would often have you know big terrorist attack that we'd be responding to and every time there's a crisis i think the public sector is amazing at coming together and collaborating it it moves me to tears to see how passionately people lean in how much commitment and effort they give to serve um and and it's almost easy to do it and we all come together we all know what the priority is we're all trying to achieve the same end it's much harder to do it in peacetime. And I've, I've over the 22 years, I've, I've been constantly kind of wondering, how can we get better at it? And it often requires a couple of things. One is a, a big um, personal commitment from the senior leaders that it's worth it. Um, and if the senior leaders are certainly in the central government looking up to the Secretary of State and the Secretary of State doesn't take it seriously, that can be a bit of a problem. Um, yeah. But I've seen lots of senior leaders who do put a lot of personal effort into that collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Um, And then the second thing is paying a lot of attention to purpose and really understanding other people's purpose and being respectful of it. Uh, When I was working in immigration, um, I was responsible for clearing the asylum backlog, um, which we had 450,000 case records, which was about 300,000 actual people and families. um, And lots of them were sitting on our books, causing us lots of money. They'd been in the country for 12 to 15 years. We used to get through that and decide if they were staying or going. Every family that got granted indefinitely to remain came off our books um, for accommodation and suddenly became a homeless family for the local authority. And I was incentivised to get lots of cases done quickly. So we were making people homeless quite quickly. And the local authorities at the other end were saying, blimey, what are you doing? We need to to accommodate these people. Um, And it, it was a big learning curve for me to work out we had to properly join up and predict what we were doing and share that information with local authorities. This is in 2007-08. Yeah. Um, and it, and I spent, I, I took a year after that job in 2010 to think about collaboration in the public sector because I was like, we're all funded by the taxpayer. I was being incentivized to um, to clear this asylum backlog. There was a, there was a big um, political push to that and there was a big financial push in immigration, but the local authorities were incentivized in a completely different way. So yeah. After to we have to listen to each other and understand each other's priorities and be respectful of those whilst also finding the common ground and the common purpose between us.
0: The important point at the end there i I would really like to emphasise on both sides of the bridge understanding each other's priorities and decision making processes is so important. One of the things which has become increasingly part of a lot of people's lives, certainly mine, over the various lockdowns has been an increase in, for example, ordering food online, especially takeaways, um, and using the now huge range of the food delivery services. So what, what is the FSA's role in regulating this and in kind of adapting to the new digital food culture that we've got?
1: It is changing really fast. And it is, um, so I, I've got some statistics here. Um, there's about 60% of us, purchase food from a takeaway, either direct or online, at least once a month. In October 2021, 40% of us had had a food delivery from an online food ordering company like Delivery at least once in the month before. Um, And we reckoned about 15% of people were ordering from online platforms at least once a week. And that was in October 2021, up from 5% in August 2020. Um, And and we've also seen a massive increase in um, online shopping. So it is huge, and it's been a seismic shift in the last two to three years. Um, and you're seeing it from the big players, so the Tesco's and the Sainsbury's and the Littles and, um, uh, and then the small takeaways that are using these big platforms, delivery and others. But also you've got all sorts of other food outlets, whether it's your farm store or whatever, that are starting to get access to bigger markets. It's, it's changing fast. So we've been thinking about it quite hard um, at the FSA, uh, and there 's some things we 've done and some things we want to do, so we have realized that that basically data is the is the way to regulate effectively um, and if we can insert the right kind of data into the digital platform, that has a very big um, effect across the network of uh, food businesses that are on that platform so for instance the we don't have any legal authority to require the, the deliveries and the Uber Eats and so on to um, put a food hygiene rating uh, uh, display yet. Certainly we don't in England, we do in, uh, in Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, but because they do display that rating, that, that incentivises the businesses to get a good rating. And then secondly, um, the different companies have decided that they won't list um, businesses unless they have a particular rating. Uh, Uber Eats, I think, is three. Deliveroo is two. We would like it to be five. Um, but it, as a consequence, you can't get onto the platform unless you've got a decent food hygiene rating. Just
0: to go back to what you were saying right at the start, five is meets the standard. Yeah. Right. OK. So two and three isn't necessarily great. No. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: what's clear is that if, if the, the business isn't allowed onto the platform by Deliveroo, they start phoning up. The local authority and saying, can you come and redo my inspection, please? Now, that's having a very good incentive effect on good food hygiene standards around the country. Um, And so we're interested in how to work with and through these digital platforms to have that kind of effect where you're improving outcomes. um, And it makes a big difference. Now, if you take, for instance, the levelling up agenda, we know that the food hygiene ratings in poor areas tend to be worse. So, um, and we also know that the takeaways and um, restaurants in those poorer areas are probably doing less good food. Now, you could use the digital platform and their effect on those um, restaurants and takeaways to, to do all sorts of things. If, you, if, if they were up for it and if, if um, either we mandated it or, um, or, uh, or there was a, a agreed collaboration over it. We do it on food hygiene rating. But imagine if you were also doing it on nutritious and sustainable food, for instance. So I see it almost like acupuncture. You have like this tiny, tiny effect with a bit of data. It have a huge effect across the whole network, the whole yeah. food system
0: that's very interesting and then I guess the other thing is that with the increase in ordering food online, there are a whole range now of, are they called uh dark kitchens or something you yeah, know where where it's not a restaurant it's just probably in a warehouse somewhere where they the sole purpose of this kitchen is to produce food for takeaway and i and i I imagine all of that needs regulated as well
1: yeah i mean i actually think it's slightly misnamed um local authorities tend to know about these places um, and it's like another kind of food manufacturing company they're just producing food to order rather than food that gets that gets packaged and put onto a shelf um and it sounds very, very sinister,
0: doesn't it? But it really, it really isn't,
1: yeah. is it? If you're a Wagamama and you've just got a massive kitchen, you're distributing it around lots of different places around London, it's called a dark kitchen. And it absolutely needs, it's, it's not outside of food law. It needs regulating, it needs a food hygiene rating, it needs an inspection and so on. So and the, the law is fine. We just need to make sure we know where they are. And again, digital tools can help us track them down. So, for instance, we did a pilot with, um, with one local authority where we, sort of mashed up uh, Google Maps information and a load of other um, information like delivery information, all of it was public data. And we were able to say, look, we think you've got some, some possibly some um, dark kitchens or whatever operating from a business park over here that you, we don't think have got a food hygiene rating. You might want to go and have a look, um, which was uh, which was really helpful for the local authority and they were able to spot it. So those sorts of digital tools that can help the whole food industry be more transparent to the regulators. Like we can yeah. see better what's going on.
0: Yeah. And just I mentioned the word sinister there. So you, you you have a national food crime unit, which I was fascinated by. And when I was doing some research for this conversation, um, I found it very interesting and in prickly some of the operations which are going on. Can you say a little bit about that? Because it's really interesting and it's certainly not something that most people would know about.
1: The National Food Crime Unit was set up after the horse meat scandal. Um, it was a recommendation of Chris Elliott's review. And initially it was an intelligence gathering operation and it was working with Trading standards and others to look at the worst forms of food fraud. And it was probably about 16 to 18 people. When Brexit happened, we bid to the Treasury for some more money and said we should turn it into a proper prosecution's um, capability. And it now is about 80 people, mostly folk who are ex investigators from the police or HMRC, um, some local authorities. So, they, so they're, they're basically doing proper criminal investigations into the worst kinds of food fraud. Um, and their role is they, they detect, investigate, disrupt serious fraud and related criminality within food supply chains. And they work with and in support of local authorities often, but then they'll do the most difficult cases themselves. Um, so examples, We've done quite a lot of work on DNP, which is a non-food which gets falsely marketed as a dieting aid. And it's actually a poison, which when you take it, it heats your body up. And um, so you lose weight very fast, but often it overheats you. And then there have been a number of deaths. Um, so in December, for instance, one of our investigations where we'd had support from the police and Border Force and others led to someone being sentenced to 28 months in prison for selling um, DNP online. And then another example where we were working with um, a local authority where they led the operation was a, was a meat one where there was a car wash. This is in Wiltshire, um, where a man had been using a bandsaw to cut meat uh, at a hand car washing business, and we were we supported the local authority in that. And he was convicted of 39 food hygiene offences, and he got oh. 10 months in prison.
0: How long, sorry? Did ten months. Right. Okay. Right. So it was a custodial sentence. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So for he'd moved to second premises to carry on his activities after there'd been a raid and emergency shutdown at the first premises. So we were able to work with the local authority to identify and trace online sales that had been going across the UK from that business. So we've got that sort of investigative capability which a local authority might not have, but we can come in and support them.
0: Wow. Now that that is very interesting and I particularly appreciate those couple of examples there. I want to talk a little bit about leadership and culture. So you've already mentioned some of the things which are important to you like communication and understanding the different you know priorities and processes of the different players but you've held leadership positions in the central government uh, as a director general in, in DEFRA and now in the Food Standards Agency as the chief executive so what approach do you take to leadership and what do you think makes you an effective leader?
1: I think about leadership a lot um, and I was I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I've been, over the last 24 hours, really trying to distill it down. I've got so much to say. We could do a whole podcast on the whole thing.
0: Well, we, and, we have time, so, yeah, it's a, we've got time for a good discussion on yeah.
1: this. So I, I think I think the, the most important thing for me is that leadership is emotional. And we talk a lot. I've done all sorts of leadership training over the years. The civil service has done some great investment in me. I've learned a lot about things like adaptive leadership and situational leadership and, and you know it's quite intellectual but I think the more time I spend doing it the more I realise it's an emotional thing and, and it's partly because you're wanting to connect to people's emotions in in the organisation that you're leading so if you can you only come together as a group to work together to do something collective that you can't do on your own and for example in the food standards agency we're doing food you can trust that's what we're here for And that we want food to be safe, we want it to be um, what it says it is, and we're just about to say we also want it to be healthier and more sustainable. And those things are our mission, but they're only um, a good mission if people connect to it emotionally. It's the thing that we're emotionally invested in, that we're collectively doing together. So, So the why, connecting to the why, is an emotional thing. And then I think how we do it, the values are emotional, Now, I joined the civil service and we have these four values in the civil service code. So impartiality, objectivity, honesty, integrity. And there have been moments in my career where those values have been challenged and I've had to sort of come back to, well, how does this feel? You know, times when I've had to tell a secretary of state that he can't procure the thing he wants to procure because we haven't followed the proper procurement process. and I've had to stand my ground on it or um, times when I've. But well, when I was working in Downing Street, where my, I was, would prepare Tony Blair for Prime Minister's Question Time, and my main effort each week was to make sure that what we said was completely accurate, because misleading the House of Commons was a resigning offence. So, like the honesty bit was incredibly important to me, and I would spend lots of time sort of making sure I properly understood the bit of briefing so I could explain to the Prime Minister that if he said that, it would be misleading. So that, and that's an emotional thing. It's like if it doesn't feel right, if the values aren't right. Then, um, th- then that's what's going on there. And then I, the, the third bit about the emotional piece is we do, we do this collective work in relationship with each other. We don't do it on our own. We do it in partnership. So how we feel about each other um, and having those strong relationships where we trust each other becomes a part of my job, I think, as a leader to try and create an environment where that's the case. And that's why I care so much about inclusion because if people don't feel safe, if they don't feel they can be themselves at work, if they feel like they have to disguise, you know, a bit of their identity, um, then then they, they're not trusting their colleagues and we can't do that work together. So I think that's the first thing is that it's, it's emotional. Yeah. And, then, and then as a consequence, it means I've, I pay a lot of attention to my emotions and to other people's emotions. So, I mean, personally, If I'm getting wound up about something or if I'm stressed or whatever, I quite often will take some time at the weekend or in the evening to talk it through with someone, to journal, to really find out what's going on. Because usually the emotions are quite a clue to me about what's going on in the system and how I need to attend to to something.
0: Yeah, it's, it's your, I'm a big believer in gut feeling. It's based on all the wiring in your head, all that experience, all that. If it doesn't feel right, it's worth some extra thought.
1: Exactly. And then there's also times when your emotions get in the way. So if I think about, you know, when I was having to challenge that Secretary of State over a bit of um, dodgy procurement practice, there was a bit of me that was afraid of um, of getting it wrong and um, the the Secretary of State not believing that I was good at my job. So this desire to impress was going on. And I had to really... Pay attention to that and notice it and go, right, this is this. I can't let this emotion dominate my interaction at this moment. I can't let my fear of um, rupturing this relationship, in effect, get in the way of doing the right thing. So it's like paying attention um, and that fear of failure uh, was, was very important. And to the point where at one point I realized that I was so afraid of getting things wrong that I needed to go and get used to getting things wrong so that I could like lance the boil. And I took myself off to a, a dance class. I thought, what am I rubbish at? Dancing. So I went to, this, yeah. went to this women's dance class um, down the road from me in South London for about six weeks. And every week I went, and it was awful. Like I literally wanted to burst. O-
0: almost in. like ritual humiliation to get and, yourself and used to really, it and hardened to it. Yeah.
1: Uh, all these amazing women doing this fantastic dancing, and I try and follow them, and I miss it, and I go <laughs> the wrong way, and. And I, and I would sort of, each week I think, OK, that was awful. But it slowly felt easier <laughs> to be rubbish at something. Um, and I I realised I needed to teach myself to get comfortable with that discomfort. That was part yeah. of the leadership act that I needed to do.
0: That's a really powerful story. And I think certainly in in my work, it's very it, it's very difficult. We, we work with central government departments with councils to help them do difficult things. And, you know, quite often mistakes are made well-intentioned mistakes because simply the path has not been trodden yet and mistakes happen. And I mean, if you look at uh, anything significant that's ever been achieved, it wasn't a perfect path. And I think that there is sometimes, or at least traditionally, maybe this is an outdated view, but within the civil service that it, it was better to avoid mistakes than to reach for, than to overreach and make mistakes. And that is not, the path to progress i don't think
1: i so agree with you and um I, I making mistakes um and being willing to to acknowledge that you've got something wrong and then adjust your approach requires a level of vulnerability that i don't think we teach enough as leaders so yeah. to open up to the possibility that you were mistaken um is is to go yeah i got it wrong and uh, sometimes people's stories kick in you know i'm a failure, how can I mean my one is God, how can anyone put me in charge of anything i can 't believe I got that wrong um, and it, it so that that sort of defense mechanism gets in the way of us really seeing what's going on in the system and really attending to it, going back to that yes. story of the local authorities and and the asylum seekers, you know my initial thought was, oh my god, I've failed you know I've got this wrong, so I was wanting to avoid seeing the truth, which was our families that we were giving ILR to were um, rocking up homeless and we needed to do something about it. So it's yeah. like, got to be vulnerable. And that comes back to some of the, the tropes about leadership, you know, that, that kind of sense of the hero is not my model. My model is being emotional. How can we be open to all the emotions that are going on so, so that we can really attend to what's really the truth of the matter in front of us?
0: Certainly, I, I completely agree. And in, in my mind, thinking about our own team. If somebody comes to me and says, I've made a mistake on this, here's how to fix it. You know, this is what I did that was wrong. This is the impact it's had. We'll focus on fixing that problem. But on reflection, I will look at that person in a much greater light because they they have had the bravery to point out early that they've made this mistake. They will now probably never make that mistake again. And therefore, their value has increased hugely. Whereas the person who tries to cover it up or pass the blame on to someone else, I mean, they they may slither through for another period of time, but they will eventually get, get found out and won't have built up that same loyalty in people for being honest and being open about things.
1: I mean, and even more than that, if the person comes to you with a mistake and is really upset about it, you can see how much they care. So I'm yeah. thinking, about examples when we've had data breaches, for instance. I mean, I remember when I was um, when I was Private Secretary to David Blunkett in the Home Office and I sent the wrong version of a fax to um, to the French when we were negotiating over Songat and I basically gave away our negotiating position inadvertently and I was more surprised, just so upset. Um, <laughs> it was an absolutely innocent mistake. Um, but what that showed, I mean, unfortunately, the people around me were very supportive and forgiving. Um, but what that showed was how much I cared about what we were doing. And, I, and if we're in the public sector, that's almost what unites us. We really care. We yeah. really, really want to make a difference. We really, really want to make it better for our fellow citizens. That's why we're here. So yeah. for me, it's, it's like just showing that, that care, that emotion. Um, And that's what's significant about it.
0: Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I've really enjoyed that discussion. Um,
1: I've got a second thing to say about leadership.
0: Yes, please. Go ahead.
1: So I think the second big thing for me about leadership is about how you hold power well. And again, in the leadership training that I've done, we never really talk about the fact that leaders are powerful. Um, It's implied and it's sort of in the room. But um, that question about power, um, I think, needs owning and confronting. And for me, um, being a leader is about trying to bring love to power. How do you hold power in a way that is caring and, um, and for the good? And power can do good things. I mean, I, I grew up as a Quaker and we were always a bit suspicious, suspicious of people with power um, because power corrupts, because um, it causes egregious, um, horrible things. The state you know, detains people inappropriately. Sometimes the rules can be um, officious. So power has got a massive shadow side, but it also has a light side. And mm. power can, you know, we can hold space. We can make things safe for people. Um, we make things happen. You can create alignment between different organisations. You can prioritise effort. You can set and uphold standards with power. And those are good things. So I'm, I'm always curious about how to do that well. And I, I'm always interested in, you know, how, how you set the rules, how you police the rules but also how you do it with compassion
0: yes very interesting very interesting thank you um so i know you've had a flexible working culture which was in place i think before covid and by flexible i mean home working, office working did having that culture already in place help your staff team during the pandemic
1: so we have about 900 staff at the food standards agency who who work behind a desk so they could work yeah. in an office or at home And before the the first lockdown, uh, we'd already moved to a much more hybrid working approach and about 400 or so, maybe 450 were home workers and the remainder were um, either entirely office based or worked half and half between office and home. It meant that we had the technology in place to work in a hybrid way. So we all had laptops and Microsoft Teams and so on. Some good working practices around um, check ins and informal stuff, but it was quite a big learning curve about how to operate completely online. Um, we now, we, as we go back into the office, and in fact, we're insisting people go back to their contracts, so office based contract, multi site contract, or home based contract from the 1st of April. So we'll see people using the offices quite a bit more after that point. Mm. Uh, what we found is that a lot of our staff have chosen to switch contracts and they're allowed to change every six months, up to every six months if they want. So they've switched off um, a multi-site contract into a home working contract or they've switched from an office based contract into a multi-site contract. In fact, that's what I've done. So I now am contracted to work two and a half days at the office a week and then two and a half days anywhere else, um, which could be anywhere else in the country or home. Um, And because we're a national organisation, it works really well for for geographical inclusion. So I've got loads of staff in Northern Ireland. I've got loads of staff in Wales. And um, when I meet the new starters every month at a coffee, I meet people from Cumbria, from Cornwall, from Wiltshire, from um, Norfolk, who have come to the FSA partly because of our homeworking and flexible working offer. And again, going back to the levelling up agenda, I love the fact that we're giving these opportunities to mm. people from the far reaches of the UK to work for central government department on something of national scale I just think that's amazing it does have some downsides and we're definitely finding that the connections between teams are getting weaker because you don't get to do that sort of going to the office spotting who's there and you know you know someone in that team you go and chat to them you get introduced to someone else so we do want to reinvigorate that if we can when we get back and then all the new starters who are young who are new to the workplace they need a bit of extra attention, that extra mentoring, because normally you'd get a lot of that in, in an office. So, they, but it's, it's got some amazing benefits and then it's also got some risks that we need to mitigate.
0: Brilliant, thank you. Um, so, I've got a couple more quick questions for you. So, um, transparency must be a very important element of the work of the FSA. And I know that your board meetings are public. So how how do you find? I'm kind of fascinated by this because I'm involved in a number of boards, but none of them are public, and I I can just imagine myself conducting myself quite differently if they, if they were public. So how do you find that that works in terms of effective governance? You know, is it difficult to have the challenging conversations?
1: And uh, when I um when I heard that the, the standards agency did these. Public board meetings and they're all live streamed on the internet, and we do them four times a year. I was pretty nervous, and and because I haven't, I'm a civil servant, you know, I'm I'm behind the scenes. That I'm, I'm not, I didn't go into politics because I don't feel completely comfortable in front of um, a camera, and I like I liked that sort of slight sense of anonymity. Uh, but the, going back to the emotions, the principle of it, I really cared about, and in fact, I was a, um, a trustee for the Joseph Tree Charitable Trust for 19 years. And, which is a Quaker trust. And we funded um, the Freedom of Information campaign to introduce the Freedom of Information Act. And I was always a bit of JLCT's work. So here was I kind of going, right, well, I believe in transparency. I have to I have to live this now. And so I've got used to it. I've been doing this job for two and a half years. And now um, what, what I realised is after the first couple of meetings, I was watching the chair, who was chairing the meeting, and I was really impressed with how she was doing it. And the main thought I had was, she really is being herself. She's mm. really making jokes and saying, um, saying the things she's thinking which I would normally get from her in a normal meeting. So that was my note to self, as be me. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my approach. Um, I, I am possibly slightly slicker than, than I would be in a normal meeting and slightly less sort of bumbling. But I mostly am trying to be as authentically me as I can because yeah. I think that's what lends itself to a decent conversation. We do a lot of preparation for the meetings. We spend a lot of time thinking about what we publish to put into the public domain and then what the debate is going to be. But we try very hard not to pre cook it. So, almost to the point where.
0: So, the real meeting doesn't happen before the actual meeting. Yeah.
1: So, and to the point where um, sometimes some of my teams will kind of say, oh, could we just have a pre brief with the board so they understand X, Y, and Z? And we'll say, no, if there's questions to be asked, they will do it in front of the camera. That's the point of the the board discussion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it also encourages people to make their briefing papers for the board more compelling and more persuasive, I suppose, as well. Um, Very interesting. Thank you, Emily. So as a final question, which I I ask everybody, what, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or a social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have?
1: basically you have to be you and not anyone else
0: which follows on from your previous point yeah authenticity
1: so and it's i've wrestled with imposter syndrome over the years um i remember when i i got a temporary promotion in defra so i was acting director general um and i was fine with it for about four or five weeks and then i had one incident where the minister disagreed with my advice and i just it just knocked me back and i went into a big panic and i privately was thinking I should I should never have got this job. This is just such an error. No one should trust me to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't hold my own. I don't know how to stand up for myself. To, you know, big story. And then, and I thought it was just the day before I was going on holiday. So I was spending a lot of time with my husband over the next couple of days. And in the end, he was like, why are you trying to be like someone else? You know, a, an assertive, aggressive senior director general in the civil service you are a bit more sensitive and a bit more thoughtful and you will have a conversation then go away and think about it and come back later and say and sort of ponder it you don't have to be completely driven the whole time you just need to be you rather than someone else and it was a real light bulb moment for me so I realized I needed to stop trying to be like these other directors general or these other directors that I saw around the place who I was perceiving were a particular way, you know, particularly assertive or particularly um, intellectual or whatever. And I needed to acknowledge that I had skills and capabilities that were good for the job and that I had been appointed to it because I was good at it. And I needed to stop trying to be them and just be me, because that's the only thing I can do is be me. I can't be anyone else. So that just and, and it's it, it, it seems so obvious, but it's just so important. because. Yeah. We all bring our own perspective, skills, insights into our work. And it's what makes it a rich, extraordinary thing to do this, this exercise of collective endeavour that we do in the public sector. And if we were all the same, it would, we just wouldn't do it well. So we've got to be ourselves. I think that's, that's my big message is you be you.
0: Great. Emily, I completely agree. Thank you so much for your time.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I hope you got as much from that as I certainly did. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on. The first is around the bridge between central government policy making and local delivery. Some of the points Emily makes here are critical. The importance of open and clear communication, understanding the priorities, often differing priorities and incentives between central government and local government. And it strikes me that This would all be a lot easier if there could be lasting relationships between public servants at the local level and central government. But in central government, people move around so much that it's really difficult to put those lasting relationships in place. In terms of the technicalities of the bridge between central and local, I thought Emily's example of when she was at the Home Office and the transfer of a person from asylum seeker to essentially being homeless and the responsibility transfer from central to local government I thought was a fantastic example of where it doesn't always work as it should the other area I think worth highlighting is Emily's comments around honesty being authentic being yourself being vulnerable even and being open to making mistakes and accepting that that is part of progression and part of achievement. And on reflection, I was thinking, is that an easier thing to say when you have made it, when you have made it to chief executive or director general? But then I was reflecting that a lot of the younger public servants and consultants who I work with, who have certainly not made it to that level yet, the really good ones are authentic, they are honest and they allow themselves to be vulnerable and to make mistakes and admit to those mistakes. So actually when I reflected on it, I thought that that was fantastic advice for everyone regardless of what level they are currently at. So that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for your time and don't forget to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you never miss a future episode.